there can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now I will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so will this be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut up a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering of incense be presented to him. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de Daniel, capítulo 2. En el segundo año de su reinado, Nebucodonosor tuvo varios sueños que lo perturbaron y no lo dejaban dormir. Mandó entonces que se reunieran los magos, hechiceros, adivinos y astrólogos de su reino para que le dijeran lo que había soñado. El rey le preguntó a Daniel, ¿a quién los babilonios le habían puesto por nombre Belsasar? ¿Puedes decirme lo que vi en mi sueño y darme su interpretación? A esto Daniel respondió, No hay ningún sabio, ni hechicero, ni mago o adivino que pueda explicarle a su majestad el misterio que le preocupa. Pero hay un Dios en el cielo que revela los misterios. Ese Dios le ha mostrado a usted lo que tendrá lugar en los días venideros. Estos son el sueño y las visiones que pasarán por la mente de su majestad mientras dormía. En su sueño, su majestad veía una estatua enorme, de tamaño impresionante y de aspecto horrible. La cabeza de esta estatua era de oro puro, el pecho y los brazos eran de plata, el vientre y los muslos eran de bronce, y las piernas eran de hierro, lo mismo que la mitad de los pies, en tanto que la otra mitad era de barro cocido. De pronto, y mientras su majestad contemplaba la estatua, una roca 
que nadie había desprendido, vino y golpeó los pies de hierro y barro de la estatua y los hizo pedazos. Con ellos se hicieron anicos, el hierro y el barro, junto con el bronce, la plata y el oro. La estatua se hizo polvo, como el que vuela en el verano cuando se trilla el trigo. El viento barrió con la estatua y no quedó ni rastro de ella. En cambio, la roca que dio contra la estatua se convirtió en una montaña enorme que llenó toda la tierra. Este fue el sueño que tuvo su majestad y este es su significado. Su majestad es rey entre los reyes. El Dios del cielo le ha dado reino, el poder, la majestad y la gloria. Su majestad es la cabeza de oro. Después de su majestad surgirá otro reino de menor importancia. Luego vendrá un tercer reino que será de bronce y dominará sobre la tierra. Finalmente vendrá un cuarto reino, sólido como el hierro. Y así como el hierro todo lo rompe, destroza y pulveriza, este cuarto reino hará polvo a los otros reinos. Su majestad veía que los pies y los dedos de la estatua eran mitad hierro y mitad barro, cocido. El hierro y el barro que su majestad vio mezclado significan que este será un reino dividido, aunque tendrá la fuerza del hierro. En los días de estos reyes, el dios del cierro, cielo establecerá un reino que jamás será destruido ni entregado a otro pueblo, sino que permanecerá para siempre y hará pedazos a todos estos reinos. Tal es el sentido del sueño. La roca se desprendía de una, de una montaña, roca que, sin la intervención de nadie, hizo añicos al hierro, al bronce, al barro, a la plata y al oro. El gran Dios ha, le ha mostrado a su majestad lo que tendrá lugar en el futuro. El sueño es verdadero y esta interpretación digna de confianza. Al oír esto, el rey Nabucodonosor se postró ante Daniel, le rindió pleitesía, ordenó que se presentara una ofrenda e incienso. Well, we're continuing in our study of the book of Daniel, a little mini-series that we started last week uh, called Living by Faith in a Multi-Faith City. And we're looking for answers to really this central question. How do you live a believing life in an unbelieving or a differently believing world? How do you do it? Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us help in this time, that you would open our hearts, our lives to you, that you would give us wisdom, insight from this passage, from your word, which is your word. And so we humble ourselves before you and ask that you would come now and speak to us, and we will listen. In Christ's name, amen. You ever have a dream that was just so vivid that by the morning you just remember every detail like you were still dreaming it. Or maybe a dream that was just so disturbing that it ends up casting a cloud over your entire day, you just can't shake it. I remember one dream apparently that Paula had one evening where I was a member of the plot and there was something apparently that I had 
done that sort of uh, was affecting her a bit. And throughout the day, she, she was sort of treating me a little bit differently. And later on, she confessed it was because she just kind of couldn't shake that dream. It was almost like it really did happen. And I really was those things and in those ways. And dreams can do that to us. They linger. They shape us. They affect us. Or maybe you ever have a dream so weird that you feel like it just must have some kind of meaning. It must be coming from somewhere. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, once had a dream like that. And so he summons all of his dream readers, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers. And he says, all right, tell me about my dream. They say, no problem, king, let's get started. Tell us what the dream was. He says, you tell me the dream. And they reply, no, king, really, we'll interpret the dream. Uh, Money back guarantee. Uh, But first, you need to tell us the dream, no? And they're trying to be very patient because you don't mess around with a paranoid dictator, right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says again, you tell me what I dreamed and then you interpret it. Or I will cut you into pieces and turn your houses into rubble. Uh Uh-oh. So now they're starting to panic. And the astrologers say to the king, that is impossible. No human being can do what you're asking us to do. Only God can do that. To which Nebuchadnezzar says effectively, yeah, that's the point. And he orders all the wise men and astrologers in Babylon to be executed. All of them including Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whom we met last week in our study of chapter 1. Daniel hears the bad news. He goes home, tells his friends about it, and they are scared. They very much could be dead by morning, and there's almost nothing they can do about it. After all, pretty young. can't be much more than 20 years old. They're far from home. We know they're exiles, deported from Israel, which itself is a small, relatively forgettable nation, deported to the foreign land of mighty Babylon. And now their boss, the most powerful man in the ancient world, has decreed their death, so they feel utterly, terribly powerless, maybe like some of you today. And so they pray. And they plead for God's mercy. And incredibly, in the middle of the night, God, through a vision, reveals to Daniel the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the meaning of the dream. And it becomes for Daniel and for us one of the greatest messages, one of the greatest sources of encouragement, not just for him, but for anyone living under the pressures of a world of power that sometimes runs contrary to your life as a believer. And so what was that dream? Well, Daniel tells the king in verse 31, okay, picture this with me, a gigantic statue. We're told that it was enormous, dazzling, awesome in appearance. Picture in your minds right now whatever symbolizes something truly impressive, something truly powerful, dazzling, Awesome. It was made of different materials. A head of gold, chest and arms of silver, 
belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet, a mixture of bronze, no, sorry, iron and clay. And then suddenly this rock comes flying into the picture and slams into the feet of this statue and the entire statue smashes into a million pieces, tiny pieces that are so small and disintegrated that they're blown away by the wind. And all that's left then is this rock which then grows and becomes a mountain that is so huge that it becomes the size of planet Earth itself. Daniel says, here's the interpretation, O king. Here's the interpretation. You got to stop eating pizza so late at night. This is really causing you some trouble. No. He says, here it is. Different body parts of the statue and the different materials that they're made of. Daniel tells us, starting in verse 36, represent different kingdoms. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. Then another kingdom will rise up, one that's a little inferior, gold now silver. Then a third kingdom, a bronze kingdom, will take over and rule over the whole earth. And finally, a fourth kingdom, a kingdom strong as iron, will conquer all the, all the others. But it will be a divided kingdom, which is why the feet of the statue were a mixture of clay and iron partly strong, partly weak and brittle. And so for centuries, literally, scholars and Christians have spent a lot of time trying to figure out, do the different parts of this statue refer to specific nations in history? If Babylon is the head of gold, is the silver kingdom, the Medo-Persian empire, which in fact did conquer the Babylonian empire, is the bronze kingdom, the Greek empire, which in fact did conquer the Persian empire, Is the Iron Kingdom a reference to the Roman Empire, which in fact did conquer them all and was in fact simultaneously strong and brittle, which is why it dominated the world but didn't last? Is that what we're supposed to take away from this? Simply a map and a roadmap of history that's to unfold. I think there's something more, and many scholars have gotten on to this. There are two keys to understanding the nature of this passage. First of all, notice that what's clearly the climax of the dream, the main point of all the action, is the rock. The rock that flies in and blows it all up. And what does this rock represent? Daniel tells us in verse 44, it's the kingdom of God. It's the rule and the reign by the power of his grace and his spirit, God coming to earth. And second, notice that this rock shatters all parts of the statue at the same time, we're told. Well, if these empires rise up, Babylon, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire and Roman Empire, if they rise up hundreds of years apart, how can they be destroyed at the same time? Well, only... If the statue is a symbol, not just of geopolitical kingdoms like Rome and Babylon, but of the kingdoms behind the kingdoms. The powers that energize and inspire some of these nations and the institutions and the structures in our society. The powers of pride the powers of sin, the powers of injustice, selfishness, even the powers of death and disease that infect and terrorize our world. These powers, these kingdoms that so often seem to rule this broken world. 
But one day, this dream is telling us, one day, Daniel explains, all those powers will be smashed and a new king and a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, will rise up. Indeed, already has begun. So what difference does that make? Can we interpret the interpretation? (laughs) What difference does that make for a band of faithful exiles living in the unbelieving, multi-faith city of Babylon? What difference might this make for Christians today living in Washington, D.C.? Four quick points, and then we'll talk about it. Number one, we see the rock is victorious. The rock wins. We hear it several times, verse 34, 35, 45. The rock strikes the statue, smashes it into pieces. Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people, which means it can't be conquered. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. So do you live in a city where some of your beliefs aren't always popular? Do you live in a city where sometimes the pressure to compromise your convictions are great or where you're not always sure exactly if you're making a difference in broader society as a Christian? Here's a word. God is in control. Even when it doesn't look like it, even when the terrible tyrants of death and disease and pride push us around, when poverty and injustice look like they are in control, when people and institutions driven by self-aggrandizing selfishness dictate our lives on a daily basis, do you know God is in charge? Over this world, over this society, over this city, His purposes for you and for this world cannot be thwarted. Because his kingdom has broken in. One day it will come in all of its fullness. One day when Jesus returns. But it was already inaugurated in the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus 2,000 years ago. Which means, one implication of this. Is that Christians, even when we are suffering... And even when things don't appear to be going the Christian way, however you define that, that Christians are never victims. And therefore, Christians don't need to be driven by fear and panic, especially in the public square. Oh, no, we're losing. Oh, no, we're losing the nation. We're losing the culture. We're losing influence as if the mission of the church is simply to get God reelected or rehired. We're well-meaning Christians who want to get an Im- make an impact on society. It's a good thing. Too often, sometimes feel like believers must get back in power in order for God to be honored or for society to be transformed. Here, Daniel, God is never out of power. God is never out of power. Even through suffering and weakness and confusing seasons, 
of time. And this is why Daniel could work with such effectiveness and freedom and courage in his job. Don't forget, he's working for a pagan, unstable king. I mean, you think you've got a crazy boss, right? My staff is nodding their heads enthusiastically, right? No. Daniel can serve an unfair, unjust, unpredictable leader because he knows that God is his ultimate king. Don't forget, he's a civil servant. He's a government official, which means he's working for the success of Babylonian society. He is working day in and day out for the flourishing of pagan Babylonian society, which can almost sound morally wrong to some Christians, but he can do this and you can do this because he knows and we can know that God is a powerful king who has the ability to squeeze out good even out of broken things. Just like he can squeeze salvation out of the splinters of a cross. So through Daniel's work of crafting laws and leading people, through little things that he does day to day that he can work to make Babylon look just a little bit more like the kingdom of God. Squeezing good out of broken things, making Babylonian society a place where people matter, a place where servanthood is prized over pride, a place where justice reigns. But he can't do that if he doesn't believe that God is up to the task. If he believes that God is hampered by who's in office and who is not Who's your boss and who has this job or who has that job? God can work through it all. I am not saying that those things don't matter. And that elections or policies and such are indeed ways in which the kingdom of God can be expressed. But do we only see God working in one way? Let's move forward. The rock is victorious. The rock is Secondly, supernatural, quickly here. Who sets up the kingdom? Who sets it up? Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up this kingdom that will never be destroyed. Twice Daniel repeats here that the rock was cut out of a mountain, not by human hands. This, of course, stands in contrast to this dazzling statue that was clearly crafted by human hands, by the effort and ingenuity of human beings. So the kingdom of God then is spiritual. It's not a political kingdom. It's not one nation state. It's not a kingdom built by human hands. And yes, the kingdom of God, as I just said, is God's power working through churches and schools and relationships and governments as Christians who bear the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit fill these institutions and structures. But Christians do need to be careful about equating God with those things. Another implication of God's kingdom, God's supernatural power is breaking into this world, then anyone can change. I can change. You can change. Anything can change change. 
And so a person's conversion is possible. Their hearts and minds opening up to the grace of God is possible. And overcoming addiction is possible. Community transformation is possible. Reconciling broken marriages is possible. The dismantling of evil is possible. Because God is on the move. It is possible, but hear this, but God must do it. It's not a work that happens by human hands. As if we make God's kingdom come about here on earth. Friends, we need to be careful if you're familiar with the language of building the kingdom of God. God alone has the power to build that. God alone has the power to turn hearts and change lives and change cities and societies. Which is a good thing, because then it means we don't need to manipulate people. It means we don't need to use fishy means to get to what you believe to be holy ends. It means we don't need to coerce people into aligning with the values of God's kingdom. And it also means that we do have to be careful as Christians about using the language of changing the world. I love the ambition. I'm on board with that. But do you understand there always has to be a humble admission and acknowledgement that the kingdom is a supernatural work that God alone can do. And while we participate and even partner together with God in the transformation of all things, only ultimately can God do it. He's the only one that can change this world. In fact, that's not just an ambition. It is a promise that in due time, he surely will. Thirdly, the rock is small and worthless. The rock is not only victorious and not only supernatural, it's small and worthless. It's the least valuable of all materials in this vision. Verse 34, 35, we're told that it was just cut out of a mountain. It's a common stone. Compared to all the other fine materials, gold, silver, bronze, iron, choice clay, this little thing is worth just about nothing. This is what we learn. God's kingdom, his power is eternal and divine, but it always starts as something that is small, poor, and weak by the world's standards. Kind of like the story of a God that might show up on planet Earth in the form of a baby. Weak and vulnerable. Born into not a rich and powerful and elite family, but a common family. A carpenter's family. That didn't live a luxurious life, but a highly needy life, if you could put it that way. No place to lay his head, this man Jesus. No place to call his own. Who lived a life of faithfulness before God, and yet that faithfulness was what what carried him to a cross. A gory Roman execution, the gore of which wasn't even the worst of his suffering. The worst of it was the hell that he bore the judgment of God that all of us deserve, that he took in our place as a gift of grace, an act of mercy, 
Salvation that came through a death, through a cross, through a seeming nobody. This is and this always has been and always will be the story of how God rolls out his kingdom. That's the pattern, folks. The transformation of our lives and of our world always works backwards and upside down. Where the way down is the way up through humility and repentance, not achievement and not religious climbing. Where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Where you find power through weakness, where you get life through a death. And so if we would just get this a little bit better, that maybe we would start to believe and understand that the kingdom always breaks in through small, unimpressive, and sometimes even foolish things. That we wouldn't just be believing that the way that we can make a difference in the world is by impressive programming or something more relevant Or something that is dazzling and awesome in appearance. But rather foolish things. Like prayer. Pray? Change the world by praying? We gotta do something, don't we? Like changing diapers. Really? And changing the world by, well, nurturing the future members of our world and society. Foolish things like suffering and the pain of giving your heart away, loving in a real way, hanging in there with one kid, one person, one neighbor, one wounded individual that's looking for love and looking for God. Walking with them over a long time with quiet faithfulness. These little things, friends, in a world where there is so much temptation for Christians to feel like they need to be sophisticated, sexy, and cutting edge for God to show up. Yes, be immersed in society and culture. We talked about this last week. And yes, know the heart of the people even better than they know it themselves. But one of the biggest temptations for Christians is to attempt to influence society by strength and power, by policy and politics, by top-down forms of transformation, when something, when sometimes life comes through a death and power actually comes through weakness. And here's the story. You won't ever see it that way, truly. You won't ever see how it all added up until the end. So there's an element of faith here. you got to believe the -the behind-the-scenes story that you're being told here, the way that the world actually works, the way the kingdom actually works, because it might not look like that on the outside. Daniel is in exile, and Jesus was, in fact, dead. But one day, there's going to be a resurrection. And one day, all things will be made right. Which takes us to the fourth point. The rock grows into a mountain. It's victorious, supernatural, 
starts small and worthless, but it does indeed grow. Not instantaneously, it grows over time. Look at the end of verse 35, the rock that struck the mountain, the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. The kingdom started when Jesus came, but it didn't immediately wipe away all evil in the world. But he will when he returns and when the kingdom of God will fill the whole world. In the meanwhile, this growth, it's gradual. It's a process. And so it calls for patient faithfulness. That sometimes transformation, whether it's my life as I struggle with sin in my life or yours, or maybe an addiction that you're wrestling up against, or maybe it's ways in which you want this neighborhood or this society to change, by the power of God's kingdom, change is real, but sometimes it's slow. Are you okay with that? That even as we labor enthusiastically and boldly, that we keep in mind that God's purposes sometimes work more slowly and more gradually than we think. And it happens sometimes more unimpressively more invisibly and sometimes even more ugly than we think. Gradual, but one day it'll become a mountain. One day we're told people from all nations will come to know the Lord. One day all life will be redeemed. One day all injustice will be turned to justice and harmony. One day all death will be weaved back into life, raised up with impenetrable life. One day all sadness will be turned to joy. One day every tear will be wiped away. One day all broken structures of humanity will be refashioned and refurbished so that every part of human life will be to the glory of God and to the true good of those that live in it. Which means, folks, there's hope. And your life and your faithfulness and your labor is not in vain. It is never in vain. Can you see how encouraging this must be for the interpreter of the dream? Hearing these words come out of his own mouth, speaking before the king in exile, believing that the kingdom of God is here. And the kingdom of God is coming. And so, dear Daniels, in this broken world, you can be still with confidence and assurance that God is on his throne. You can be still because God is on your side. You can be still because even in times of trial and even intense suffering and pressure, God is victorious. Be still. God is on your side. Do you believe this? Can you wake up tomorrow morning with that kind of energizing faith, with that kind of motive to love, and even to lay down your life as the one who gave his up for you? Let's pray. We pray, God, that you would come now and just make all sorts of connections between this vision and our actual specific lives. We pray that you would start with our hearts, that we would really believe your kingdom is as you said it is. 
that we would trust in you, our King. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing it into our hearts. Let's stand up together and let's sing Be Still My Soul.